Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. I've seldom had this much fun conducting a concert with the Albany Symphony, even though I always have a great time conducting the Albany Symphony, because this time I was actually invited to create the concert made up of pieces that have particular resonance or meaning for me. It seems that I just crossed the 50-year threshold on February 16th. That was my actual 50th birthday. And uh, the Albany Symphony's executive director, Brian Ritter, while we were planning our season, said to me, well, listen, David, it's a very big milestone, this turning 50, and why don't you let us all celebrate it with you, and, and so why don't you design a concert that's essentially made up of all of your favorite things? Now, that's, of course, a very tall order for me or for any musician or conductor because we have a lot of favorite things. We have a lot of different music that has great meaning to us and certain favorite pieces and desert island pieces and pieces that we love to hear and love to conduct and and love to explore. Uh, So I tried to whittle it down a little bit, and given the parameters of the concert, I selected sort of three different sides of my personality in a way, if you will. It was kind of an interesting and, and fun, although a little bit irreverent, exercise. And so we decided to divide the concert into thirds, not to do our conventional first-half, second-half concert, but to do essentially three 20- to 25-minute sets, each one being a very distinctive and unique sort of side of the kinds of music that interest me. So we began with a group of three remarkable guitarists from Lisbon, from Portugal. And the way this third of the concert came about uh, is that for a number of years now, uh, in the summertime, I've been invited to a fantastic summer music festival, really the the finest and actually the oldest and most established music festival in all of Portugal, uh, in the beautiful seaside town of Estoril, or Estoril, as they say, which is just about 25 minutes up the road from downtown Lisbon. It's a beautiful, charming town, and right next to Estoril, if you've ever been to the Portuguese coast, another equally charming town called Cascais. And the founder and uh, artistic director of this festival is a, an incredible man named Pinei Ronaggi, uh, whom I've always known as an artistic administrator, as a presenter. I've never collaborated with him playing music before, but he's the man who's invited me to this festival and who really is the heart and soul of this festival. And it really reflects his interests, among which uh, is a, an extremely uh, strong commitment to living composers, particularly in his case to living Mediterranean composers and to young Mediterranean composers. And so I've had a a fantastic time at this festival because at the festival I've been invited to conduct orchestra concerts and chamber orchestra concerts, and invariably these concerts have featured the best young composers from around Europe and particularly from the Mediterranean region. And many of those composers, I've, I've had their works brought back to America and we've performed their works. Composers like the Portuguese composer Luis Tinoco, who's actually going to be featured on our final concert this season, or the Italian Alberto Cola, or the Greek composer Kostis Kritsotakis, 
uh, and many other composers I've discovered through my work at the at the Sturil Festival in, in Portugal. Uh, it happens that I, I knew that Mr. Naji uh, is also the uh, sort of father of Portuguese classical guitar playing, and in essence um, studied guitar very seriously as a young man, and went off to Spain and studied it, and then came back to Portugal and really, in essence, seeded a whole group in, in all sorts of small and mid-sized towns around Portugal, seeded a, a real guitar education network. His students went off to these various sized towns and began teaching their own students. And in, in essence, he's sort of the, the great-grandfather, although he's still a, a relatively young man in his 60s or early 70s, perhaps, uh, of Portuguese guitar playing. And together with two of his finest former students, uh, he's created this beautiful little guitar trio, which is performed all over Europe and in Russia, at the Kremlin, actually, uh, and throughout Europe, but has never performed in the U.S. And they play a a repertoire which is partly made up of works for three guitars, uh, of which there are not too many works, and they've done a lot of their own arranging. But in addition, they've created a fascinating repertoire for three guitars with orchestra. And they've performed that all over Europe, but never in the States. So I thought this would be a wonderful chance to invite my dear friend Pinero Naiji uh, to join me for my birthday concert and to bring his two brilliant young colleagues on the guitar to uh, play with us and to perform some of these magnificent compositions they've had created for their ensemble. So for this concert, Maestro Naji and his young colleagues brought over five selections. Four of them are actually classic works from the Spanish guitar repertoire, but expanded to accommodate the three guitars with orchestra. And the fifth work, the final work, is actually a brand new piece commissioned specifically for the ensemble and receiving its premiere on this concert by the very lyrical and incredibly spiritual uh, Italian composer Alberto Cola. So the works on this set of the concert, the first set of the concert, are first a work by Granados. uh, And this is an intermezzo from his opera Goyescas. This was a a very famous Spanish opera about the life of the great Spanish painter Goya. It was actually premiered at the Metropolitan Opera, and Granados discovered sort of midway through rehearsals that there needed to be a longer scene change between the two acts. And so one night he stayed up through the night and created this beautiful intermezzo, which Maestro Nagy has now uh, transcribed for three guitars and small orchestra. It's followed by three startlingly beautiful works by uh, Isaac Albenes, uh, arguably the greatest uh, writer for piano in all of Spanish history. And these pieces actually began their lives as piano pieces and are extremely beautiful piano pieces, but are so Spanish that guitarists very quickly, early on in their lives, took them on and created versions for solo guitar. Naji explained to us that it's sometimes very frustrating for guitarists to play these works as famous and as beautiful as they are on the guitar because the guitar, by virtue of its having such a more limited range in terms of just the notes available to it than a piano, guitarists have to very much reduce the music and actually find sort of simplifications and not use the full expanse of the piano range for these pieces. So the advantage of playing this work with three guitars in these new arrangements by Mr. Naji is that now they really can sound the same way they do on the piano and can exploit the entire pianistic range. Uh, So they are very, very celebrated, beautiful, intimate pieces by Albenes. First, Asturias, maybe the most famous piece of guitar music, which it turns out actually is piano music transcribed for guitar, followed by Cordoba, and then finally Cadiz, three works by Isaac Albenes. Finally, for the guitar set, uh, we come to this world premiere of the new work by Alberto Cola. It's called Nocturnal Tears, and I must confess that I was a little confused in that 
Mr. Naji and I communicated by email in the year prior to their coming for the concert, and he had said that this was an, an existing piece, but in maybe a new version. And so I was perplexed when I got a bill from uh, Mr. Cola's publisher, Ricordi, for the premiere rights. And I emailed them back and said, but this isn't the premiere. Why are you charging us for premiere rights? And they said, oh, but it is the premiere. And I communicated with Mr. Naji, and it turns out that originally Alberto had written a piece for the three guitars, just a trio piece without any other musicians, without orchestra. And I believe it was called In el Silencio de la Noche, In the Still or In the Silence of the Night, very evocative piece for three guitars. And the original plan was for Alberto to take that piece and then just expand it, use the same material, but make it a piece for guitars and orchestra. But a few months back, Alberto got in touch with Mr. Naji and said, you know, I'd rather write an entirely original composition, which in fact he did, but no one ever informed me. So I was frankly delighted that here we had just expected to play an existing piece, but in fact we had a world premiere of a very evocative and beautiful night piece by Alberto Cola. So finally on our guitar set, Alberto Cola's Nocturnal Tears. So Granados first, three pieces by Albenes, and finally Alberto Cola's Nocturnal Tears in its world premiere, the Pineiro Nagy Guitar Ensemble joins the Albany Symphony. The members of the Nagy Guitar uh, Ensemble are, of course, Pineiro Nagy, as well as his two young colleagues, Pedro Luis and Miguel Vieira da Silva. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. For the middle part of our concert, uh, we decided to embark on something entirely different, something that doesn't usually appear on an Albany Symphony concert. As you may know, the Albany Symphony has a number of different ensembles and a number of different things we do, everything from education outreach to recording to uh, our big American music festival, which comes up at the end of every year in May, to our very singular and unique new music ensemble called the Dogs of Desire. The Dogs of Desire usually play their own concert on the American Music Festival and, uh, unfortunately, are not heard nearly enough the rest of the year. The Dogs of Desire is comprised of 16 of our principal players from the Albany Symphony and two female vocalists. What it is, in, in essence, is a, a sort of a, a, an imaginary... It's not imaginary because it exists is sort of an imagined uh, orchestra of the future, an orchestra that uh, explores the world of popular culture and does so uh, with instruments that are not always considered typical orchestral instruments combined with traditional orchestral instruments. So we have string quintet, woodwind quartet, a trumpet, trombone, horn, but we also have two saxes as well as a drummer, a synthesizer player, and these two dazzling female vocalists who sing with the group. And uh, so when the Dog's Desire performs, usually it performs on its own concert and usually does an entire evening's worth of new works commissioned by the ensemble for the ensemble. But I thought it would be really fun for our symphonic subscription audience to get a chance to hear, to get a little taste of just how special and unusual and uh, brilliant our Dogs of Desire is. I should probably mention, because I often get questions about it, that the genesis of the name Dogs of Desire came to me uh, when I was first conceptualizing the, the idea of the ensemble. I was still living in Los Angeles. It was before I'd come to Albany, and I was the assistant conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and I wanted to create this sort of fabulous garage band, symphonic, chamber ensemble, orchestra of the future that explored popular culture. And I started making lists and lists of names, you know, cute names like Norchestra and various little plays on words, 
And a friend of mine mentioned that he'd had a rock band in college called The Dogs of Desire. And I, I noticed that my mother recoiled at that title. It was her least favorite of all the long list of, of titles I had. So I thought that was the one that I wanted to go with because it had the, the fewest classical connotations and it really upset my mom. I love my mom, but it seemed like the one that would get us the message across that this is not your typical regular old chamber orchestra. So the Dogs of Desire it was, and the Dogs of Desire it is. And at this point, the Dogs of Desire have been in existence for probably 15 years, and we've probably premiered over 150 new compositions by particularly young composers. And uh, we have a great time and a wonderful following who come and, and watch us play when we show up at the American Music Festival in May. So I thought it would be a great chance for our regular subscription audience to encounter the Dogs of Desire because so many of them have probably never heard it before. And we have a, a brilliant composer who's kind of become the de facto house composer of the Dogs of Desire. David Malamud is his name, and he lives and works in New York City and writes the most fabulous and somewhat irreverent but always charming pieces that uh, are inspired by different aspects of, dare I say, earlier culture. Uh, he wrote a tremendous set of Victorian parlor songs, entirely original but sounding quite a lot like authentic Victorian parlor songs, although with rather ridiculous lyrics that he himself fashioned. And and then uh, two years ago, he created a piece uh, that he had wanted to write for some time, inspired by the Follies Bergère, by French burlesque, and specifically by the Follies Bergère. And, and David, I always sort of describe him as sort of the Marcel Duchamp of classical composers. He, he has an incredible ear for completely assimilating styles and creating his own original works, but that sound so echt, so authentic, that you almost can't believe they're not just arrangements. In fact, they're never arrangements. They're always unique works of his own, and he, he works for many, many months and thousands of hours to fashion these works. So he immersed himself in the music of the Follies Bergère, and then he wrote this incredible 25-minute piece inspired by the Follies Bergère, but his idea was it's as if the ghosts of the golden era of the Follies Bergère have returned for one performance. And in this performance, they essentially, through song, uh, tell the story of the greatest performers of the golden era of the Follies Bergère, Maurice Chevalier, whom we all probably know from film, and Mistinguet. Who, with whom Chevalier had this passionate, torrid love affair for many years that, of course, ended with breakup and sadness, but sort of tracked this golden era. And so through a series of six or seven songs, David tells the story uh, in a very lively, funny way of this love affair. And I think it's rather self-explanatory, although you'll notice that certain of the songs seem to have very specific ideas behind them. In the story of Chevalier and Miston Getz's love affair, uh, at a certain point they... They fell in love early in their act. Uh, they were in this act where they got rolled up in a carpet together and after about two weeks of being rolled and rolled off stage, after about two weeks of being rolled up in the carpet together, they shared their first kiss and, and their love affair started. Eventually, uh, Chevalier went off to join the army during the First World War. You'll hear some music that reflects that. And he was ultimately wounded and uh, captured and kept in a German prison camp and feared uh, dead. But it was actually through the intercession of Mistinguet talking to the king of Spain that uh, Chevalier was eventually rescued and returned to France, where his career continued. And then their love affair eventually disintegrated, although they both had glorious, remarkable careers even after their, their love affair had ended. So through this piece, you'll, you'll hear different uh, songs, one of which is a, a charming kind of English dance hall song. There was a figure uh, named Little Titch, uh, who was a famous uh, Folies Berger figure and was actually uh, English and was um, sort of the model for Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. 
And so there's a little uh, wonderful song about joining the army that uh, is sung by Little Titch. There's also an amazing song late in the in the piece, uh, which is a, a fascinating setting of the Dies Irae from the Requiem Mass, but set to a conga, Josephine Baker style, uh, sort of to signal the end of the affair, and many other wonderful, dazzling, charming touches to this work. The libretto is entirely fashioned by David out of some real French, some faux French, some nonsensical French, and a bit of English as well. And here it is now, the complete last call at the Follies Bergère. The work is by David Malamud, and it features the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller, along with the two brilliant singers, Alexandra Sweeten and Kamala Shankaram. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. And now for the final third of this concert, I thought it would be only fitting that we play a real classic, since we've had uh, two sets that were rather unconventional and unusual and, dare I say, unfamiliar to many of our listeners. I always love uh, to end a concert with a Beethoven symphony, and I don't care too much which one, since they're all equally remarkable. But at this point, it was just about time for us to play the Beethoven Fourth Symphony. We haven't performed it in a number of years, and it's a, a joyful, lively, brilliant piece, very much owing its, its uh, existence to Beethoven's teacher, to Franz Josef Haydn. It has the same kind of wit and, and charm and a beautiful proportion architecture that Haydn so prized. So I thought it would be only fitting to end the concert with a Beethoven symphony. I, I love Beethoven's music. He's certainly one of my absolute desert island composers. And what I particularly love about his music is the incredible energy, the bristling energy of virtually all of his great works, particularly his symphonies. And so I thought it would be a fitting close to this very exciting and multifaceted concert to close with one of my favorite Beethoven symphonies, the Symphony Number no. 4 in B-flat major. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, and they're conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion.